0: Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Well, hello. I'm so happy to have you joining the Finding Harmony podcast this week. We have a very interesting and um, qualified, experienced, I don't know, guest for you today, um, Dr. Emma Bragdon. She has a PhD and she's the founder of Integrative Mental Health University. And she was first introduced to meditation back in 1964, and it's been the cornerstone of her life ever since. She has this strong mission In life to help people integrate their spiritual experiences and so sometimes as a spiritual practitioner on the path of yoga maybe you have an energy release or this psycho-spiritual energy this kundalini awakening happen and sometimes you don't have the support or anyone in your life to talk to about it. And when things like this happen, especially in Western cultures, where it's very much out of our context, out of our frame of reference, um, you can feel really alone and confused. Sometimes you enter manic episodes or get really depressed or feel delusional, um, maybe even psychotic. And so these can be really strong experiences. And so Emma, Dr. Emma, as I like to call her, um, is providing the resources to really help support people um, when they have these types of experiences through their spiritual practices like yoga or pranayama. And as yoga is just growing and growing and and breathwork now is growing and growing all over the world, Um, What she's doing is really cutting edge and very, very necessary because um, more and more people are going to need some support in integrating this prana, this powerful shakti, this powerful, powerful, (laughs) this powerful, powerful (laughs) energy that is being released through these practices at times. And so... Um, We're talking a lot about her journey into this field and also some of the interesting teachers she met along the way. And we're also diving into what to do when the guru lets you down or when the guru abuses power because she herself has experienced these situations in all of her long years of practicing spiritual practices in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and has seen many um, spiritual leaders rise and develop huge followings and then also betray their students or their devotees. And so how to integrate that kind of work as well, which is something that um, I feel is really, really uh, relevant and essential to our conversation as yoga practitioners, especially ashtanga yoga practitioners, but really any type of yoga practitioners these days is what is the role of the guru? um, And how do you know if you're giving away your power and your autonomy? Because yoga really isn't about giving away your power or your autonomy. It's actually about reclaiming your sovereignty. You know, yoga is about maximal freedom. Um, I love the, the Bihar Yoga Sutras. Uh, it's called the, the title to it, I think is like the path to freedom. And, and that's what yoga is, is it's a path to freedom or a guide to freedom. Uh, Ishvara Pranidhana is reclaiming your sovereignty, reclaiming your personal power um your personal power which is the ultimate god energy in you and when you're claiming your personal power it's not from this ego perspective this limited ego perspective it's actually aligning with your true nature which is supreme consciousness which is infinite which is what you might call god or Uh, universal energy. But often along the path, we give our power away. And then we start seeing someone else as holding the knowledge or holding the key to our freedom. And we put ourselves in a little box or a little cage where we only do what that person, that teacher tells us we can do. Or We put them up so high that there's no place for us to be except under them. And we create these hierarchies and these status structures, whether it's in our mind or it's in reality, and they can become real obstacles, not only to our spiritual growth and development, but also obstacles for the teacher, for the people that are being put up on the pedestals, because it inhibits their growth as well, and it becomes a very tempting place to be put uh, where then these abuses can happen because nobody is calling you out or questioning your authority or your wisdom or your actions. So it's a really awesome conversation that we're having and if you'd like to know more about Dr. Emma Bragdon and the work that she's doing and how you can also learn from her, you can head on over to her website. She has a wonderful online course that's called how to effectively support someone in a spiritual emergency which i think would be an excellent course to take for all yoga teachers to get this training so that you can effectively assist your students or someone in your life who may have had a spiritually tran- transformative experience and maybe they're feeling a little disoriented from it or maybe they're feeling afraid of the changes that they're noticing coming up in them. And so this would be a great course. That's how to effectively support someone in a spiritual emergency. And there is also another course that I think many yoga teachers uh, that I know would be very interested in as well. And it's called training to help people integrate psychedelics and plant medicines. And so we don't go too much into this. But um, Dr. Emma did a lot of training in Brazil and working in hospitals in Brazil. We do go into it a little bit, obviously, but um, this is a whole other conversation and area that I think is really relevant, especially because there's more and more uh, students of yoga and spiritual seekers out there who are experimenting with plant medicine um, for healing purposes, for integration purposes, for personal growth, for maybe transcendental experiences. So um, sometimes those types of experiments can go a little astray as well. And so this course would just help you know how to support someone who is needing to integrate these types of mystical encounters. So those are a couple of things I wanted to let you know about. And uh, Dr. Emma also has a course that is about training you to become a spiritual emergence coach. Um, This course is only taught in person and it's taught in retreat and there's a few prerequisites. But if that's something you're interested in, you can find out all of the information on her website. She only gives the practicum part of the course live. So there is some online study and then there's some live retreats where you can work on your practicum to become a spiritual emergence coach. So. Lots of amazing things. You're going to absolutely love this conversation. I think you're going to get so much out of it because it's really, really powerful. And to let you know, I will be traveling coming up at the end of May. I will be in York in the UK, May 26th, 27th, and 28th. And then teaching my own retreat, which is a deep dive into using these tools like pranayama, meditation, mantra, asana, as well as introspective practices of self-reflection, of looking at your beliefs, questioning your beliefs, reframing um, your thoughts, and recreating your belief system so that you can truly step into the type of future the type of person you want to become we're going to be doing all of that um, in my 12-day retreat from June 1st to June 12th there are some six-day options and please uh, email or DM me if you're interested in joining it's super affordable and it's a very intimate experience we only have a maximum of 12 people who come on these retreats so there's a few spots left and I would love to help facilitate your own a personal journey in deepening your spiritual practice and deepening that spiritual connection and having those deeper spiritual experiences that we're talking about in this episode so that you can um, you know awaken and feel lit up from the inside and really reconnect to your spiritual practice and your disciplines that bring you alive and make you feel alive and give you that that incredible infinite energy where you're on purpose and on point and living your dharma living your truth living your your purpose in your life so sometimes i feel and find that creating sacred space a special time just for yourself where you don't have to worry about you know feeding yourself and The family, and you're in a different context. You're outside of your normal routine. You're in a place where you can really relax and allow your nervous system to just reset. Your focus is on practice. Your focus is on enjoyment and pleasure, in the sense of like really truly just like enjoying yourself and new sights and new sounds and new smells and diving in the ocean and swimming in the ocean and. Just like the luxury of the sim- simple things in life, um, it's amazing. It's an amazing way to reconnect to what fuels you and to also kind of hit the reset button on your personal practice and taking a look to make sure you're still heading in the direction you want to go. Um, so to me, that's really important is to stop and take a look sometimes to really examine, are you doing the things that are going to move you forward in the direction that you want to go? Or are you just reacting and responding to all of the demands of life and, and just doing the minimum or doing what's expected of you. And so this is an opportunity to take that time to step back, to examine, to reflect, to reframe, and to get back on track with your aligning with your purpose and your passion so that you can go deeper into that spiritual connection with yourself because it's always there it's always in you it's just a matter of giving it attention and space and the time to create new neural pathways where you can know how to get into that space that sacred inner temple whenever you want right you don't have to to create anything new. You just have to uncover the path within. After that retreat, I will be spending the weekend in Munich, Germany, June 16th, 17th, and 18th. So I would love for you to come join me at Ashtanga Spirit Munich, where I'll be teaching uh, with my friend, Asta Kaplan, in her beautiful Mysore program there. I'll be leading Mysore classes, the 16th, 17th, and 18th, along with different workshops and topics, philosophy, uh, pranayama, you know, really energizing your practice. So if you're in Europe, and it's an easy hop over to Munich, I would love to have you sign up and join me at Ashtanga Spirit Munich, June 16th, 17th and 18th. So all those links will be in the show notes. And without further ado, let's jump into this amazing conversation with Dr. Emma,
1: that that Harvard is leading in that, and they are actually inviting people to come <clears throat> have lunch both days for free, and it's all on Harvard, <clears throat> and and I think it's it's two days and a Friday evening as well, so uh, you know let's say two and a half days of mm-hmm. talks and wow. workshops and papers and and all kinds of people showing up. So I. Anyway, I'll well, probably show up for some of it. But yeah,
2: don't. you should. It's sort of your area, isn't it?
1: Unfortunately, part <laughs> of my experience not having been terribly abused, but watching to see what happens in communities when mm-hmm. someone yeah, yeah, so. yeah.
3: I, I, you know, I, it's an interesting question because I, I feel like um, where I've thought. I'm not sure if I feel it, but I, I've thought that perhaps like the whole construct of, of religion is, is about trying to um recreate the conditions for spiritual emergence, as the the term that I just learned from reading your your bio. And uh and then controlling the the outcome of spiritual emergence. And this is something that you know young young people you know or anyone I guess just you know kind of they they find themselves in this kind of ecstatic state they find themselves in uh in a pranic opening and then it's it's amazing and perhaps they're they're charismatic because of that uh event, and then people say, well, you know uh ramakrishna is really cool." You know, he just had this pranic opening. Maybe we should create a construct around him so that we can recreate this experience, uh, you know, or the Dalai Lama or Jesus or Ramana
4: Maharshi,
3: R- Ramana Maharshi you know, um, uh, Yogananda Paramah- Paramahamsa, you know, anybody. And then um, if you get out of line, we're going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> You know, wow.
2: <laughs> and,
3: and that's then. Then you know the religion, pro, you know, you know, propagates, well,
2: it establishes like rules and modes of conduct, and
3: and you know then so, and then people are you know inevitably abused within this kind of bureaucratic structure. I mean, does that's what I feel like we're we're dealing with when we talk about like, religion? Am, am, am I do does that? Am I do you think I'm too cynical? <laughs>
1: Well, that is a kind of cynical approach. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if if you got the news in um, in Canada, but last week, I think it was exactly a week ago, there was another big kerfuffle about 600 people having been abused within the Catholic Church. I mean, this uh, is like children, right? Yeah, having been it's abused, terrible. Uh, in the uh, Baltimore area. Of Maryland, oh. I mean that's just so small area, right? Ugh. Yeah. So, so that kind of goes along with what you're talking about. It's not exactly having the kids um, be abused as the, the shit beat out of them, but abused <laughs> in other ways, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's the bureaucracy that that held the power, <laughs> and mm-hmm. even um, you know created secrecy around what was going on, so there was no transparency at all. And here it is, like 30, 40 years later, in a lot of cases, yeah. and it's coming out. So I don't, I don't know about all religions being so toxic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, 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 I think I put in my bio that I'm a member of the Self-Realization Fellowship, and so follower of mm-hmm. Paramahansa Yogananda. And I haven't seen those kind anything close to those kind of yeah. abuses, but it also doesn't claim to be a religion. It's, mm. you know, one organization, I mean, it, it's been called the church of all religions. It welcomes people yeah. from all religions and it doesn't go into what it calls churchianity.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> churchianity, churchianity, I like yeah.
1: that. You know, people just go into church and not really yeah. living it the rest of their life. And it's, it's more just, you know, a fellowship get together and let's meditate because meditate will take us to, to, um, spiritual evolution. Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know, I like that I also think- about like uh the SN Gawanko Vapashna sort of organization as well. I mean, I know at like higher levels of these organizations there's always politics and bureaucracy and you know because people are people, but the mission itself is very simple and and <laughs> pure, I think, which is just like let's come together and meditate and observe the experience and, and what your experience is and not try to manipulate the situation or create something that isn't there, but just yeah. like see reality as it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know so much about Gwenka. Are you are you both
2: participating, following him? I've done I've done many of the 10 day retreats. Um yeah. Yeah, silent retreats.
3: I've done I've done one. Uh, I was also initiated into um Srp. Um <laughs> S-R- the SRF. SRF, yeah. I was also initiated and in, and I and uh I um had an extraordinary weekend in, in Texas um with um with a group down there. Um I I I'm just I guess I'm I'm wondering if, if, if abuse is inevitable that, you know, we, 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 as humans, we, we create these kind of, um, we try and recreate the forms that, that, that help us, uh, that, or, or even cause a a pranic opening. And then, um, we try and organize it. And then, you know, someone, um, Someone vulnerable gets gets hurt in, in the in the process, and I just it it seems like um, I'm I'm just yeah I guess that's I'll just go back to the question if, if abuse is is inevitable.
1: Hmm. Well, just this week I had a client of mine talk about calling up SRF because they were having a um, real wonderment about the Kundalini experience they'd had. Mm-hmm. And they were really um, discouraged and disappointed with what they got back from the nun. So, so uh, that's not to say the nun was bad or my or this client of mine was bad or wrong or anything like that, but the interaction was not empowering for her. Oh, and so, you know, you could say, well, that's a form of abuse, disempowerment, or bringing yeah. a person into self-doubt and And not really providing a way out of it, which mm-hmm. was what her experience was, so you know there are lots of different levels of abuse yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe if if we say the opposite of abuse is empowerment, does empowerment mm-hmm. always happen in the in a bureaucratic situation? No mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. I hate to call it abuse that's pretty strong, although I've seen a lot of it or. Mm-hmm. Not, Uh, not been I don't feel like I've been victimized by it as it were Mm
4: -hmm.
1: but um, and and probably because my my red flags went up and I said oops time to leave
2: yeah (laughs) okay for me Mm -hmm. yeah it's helpful to have those red flags and to listen to them (laughs)
1: yes it is (laughs) if we have the wisdom to listen but But, um, in the process, I also, you know, look back over my shoulder and say, Ooh, there are a lot of people have just gotten really wounded and I'm very sorry about that. And I'm not quite sure what I can do about it. And it's, it's created in some circumstances, a lot of moral dilemmas for me, actually.
4: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: And so, you know, and I think a fellowship, whether it's Gwenka or whether it's Yogananda, you know, people getting together and meditating together and supporting each other's spiritual practice. How fabulous is that? And, yeah. and yet, yeah, I agree. So when it gets formalized in a way where some people are going to be um, disempowered, mm-hmm. get the approach of difficult territory.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, because we come from this community, you know, the Ashtanga Yoga community and and have that as our background and and in some ways it is sort of like a fellowship where people come together and practice, you know, asana together and yeah. support each other in their in their spiritual development and growth. But it it is a little bit sinister in a way because humans are humans. And so there's always like a little bit of competitiveness or a little bit of like I'm better than you cuz I, you know, have went to Mysore before you or I can do advanced yeah. asanas or you know, oh, you're you're a little bit too chubby. You need to diet a bit more so that
3: I, I feel like there, like there's a, a good metaphor for what you're describing, harmony. Yeah, and that's like when you see uh, dogs at the park, <laughs> and an, an alpha female puts her paw on a young pup and pushes him to the ground. Yeah, that was my experience in Mysore. Right, is that the older the older students, uh, especially the women, would, co- would put their paw on me. It's like this is we're gonna we're gonna create normative uh mores for right. this this culture that we're creating and you're exceeding them you're exceeding those boundaries
2: right well there is always that like normative behavior and like things that people are kind of trying to or emphasizing and mm-hmm. certain behaviors get rewarded and certain behaviors get kind of ignored or shunned or so how do we like deal with that <laughs> <laughs> Not that you have all the answers, but
1: <laughs> it's complicated, I, right? Yeah, it, it's complicated. I know. I know. At a certain point, for me, uh, about 12 years ago, I said, I, "I've had it. I'm going to be only with someone who's recognized as, as self-realized." And I know yeah. that they're fabulous teachers and I know that there's some wonderful organizations and a lot of really great stuff happening. But at a certain point, I just said, I want to be in that lin- uh, following a lineage that is really acknowledged as self-realized. Yeah. So I and, and um, at, at, in the ripeness of my age, I feel like I can look at the, the bureaucracy that's gotten set up and say, OK, it's really necessary to have an organization.
2: Right. To so stay organized. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so people have yeah. to go.
2: They know when to
1: show up. They know when it's appropriate to leave. They know where if their car is safe, where it's parked. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. So organization on that level is important, but also organization as to, you know, is the meditation room um, clean? Is there a lot of dust yeah. in it? Are people going to be breathing in dust when they're meditating or not? You know, all, yeah. all of that Kind of basic stuff has to be taken care of, and so mm-hmm. there's got to be some kind of organization that's the way things work <laughs> and yeah. I, I can I can see that there are some um inconsistencies in terms of not everyone's enlightened in a group that follows an enlightened person <laughs> and uh, And so here we are all together doing our best. And I can, I can let go of some of the things that used to be disturbing for me. Yeah. So.
3: I think that's, that's, that's really fascinating. I, 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 this is a kind of notion of organizational wisdom. Um, You know, I, I had the sense that you look at at an ancient tradition, say the Zen tradition, uh, or the Tibetan Mahayana tradition, and you have ancient organizations with understandings of how growth, pranic growth, or kundalini openings can happen in a safe way. Whereas you look at, say, uh, some of the cults that that spring up in the in the in North America around, say, Andrew Cohen, or Geshe Michael Roach, or um, David Koresh and, and the organization's too young and there, a lot of mistakes are being made and people are are getting hurt. Um, I I think that um, there's a kind of dynamic that we're talking about where we're, where Harmony and I are kind of, you know, a little bit uh, burnt by our experience with our, with our, Cult and uh, cynical <laughs> and and anxious about organization. Whereas there's also a wisdom to having, uh, just continuing to get better and continuing to learn and make your organization um, safe over <laughs> a thousand years.
1: So if we're just starting, let's say even... <laughs> To be generous about it, if we're if the Eastern philosophies were just coming in at the beginning of the last century, right? So we're only mm-hmm. three years into it, and you're saying mm-hmm. maybe it'll take a thousand years. Uh, interesting, yeah. But so, look at the
2: Catholic Church; they've had a thousand years. Two thousand. They're, they're not doing yeah. so good. No, so, at <laughs> certain they could, levels.
3: They may need a revolution of some kind. Yeah, mm. you know, information. I,
1: on on uh, what we're talking about, I just read this particular book. I don't know if you can see it.
3: the dark side of. Dark-
1: yes, by Anna, and I won't. Well, I um, Lute Kajtis, I think, is the way you pronounce her last name. Anyway, she's Australian, and what she's basically saying is, yeah, the Eastern philosophies came in, and that of course includes Hatha Yoga and the Asanas, and the yeah. whole tradition mm-hmm. behind it. They came in and um w- in some instances you know there was a-, a lot of uh genuine interest but then they got secularized and in the process of being secularized some extremely important things were lost as in you need to have a guide or guru depending on what it is but you need to have someone who really knows the territory so to go yeah. back to what Russell, you were saying a little while ago, if some young, energetic, wonderful person goes into a really deep practice and has an ecstatic state and then feels kind of wobbly, maybe psychologically, maybe spiritually, mm-hmm. has a lot of questions, wonders if they um, something's going off, like they're getting a little crazy or whatever. In the older tradition, it was even written up, you know, by the gurus or, uh, evolved teachers. What you do in that case? <laughs> How you help somebody. <laughs> yeah, but that didn't get transmitted when these uh, practices were transferred over to the west as we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, so what did get pra- what did get translated was oh here are the asanas. Here's the way you do them. Here's the way mm-hmm. you do the breathing exercises, pranayama, and here's what pranayama looks like, and here's the way you do it, and come on to an intensive and we'll really get into this deeply. But the pe- people have uh, not been reading and maybe not even had access to some of those more subtle um, pieces of guidance around how you help someone if they run into well, I can't say if they run into an ecstatic state. I mean, who wants to ask for help <laughs> feeling good? But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes right after the ecstatic state comes, oh, why can't I hold on to this? Oh, why am I having this kind of dark space come up all of a sudden? I was mm-hmm. feeling so good a couple of days ago. Yeah. Oh, who do I turn to? The intensive is over. They've left town. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's no one I can turn to, yeah, 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 so that's one of the dark things that sh- that this author goes into that in the process of things getting secularized, people can have you know big experiences and then mm-hmm. also have some uh fallout as and sometimes it means, oh, in the process of having expanded consciousness, I now see that I was sexually abused as a kid. All right. those things came to me. What will I do? Where mm-hmm. is the therapist who also knows about the ecstatic experiences that I just had and won't call me a lunatic because they think it's a hallucination or a delusion? Right. And yeah. where is that person who understands that you can go into something that's ecstatic that is actually part of your spiritual growth and evolution and is totally wonderful and also can help me with this horrible stuff I just discovered about being sexually abused when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So I need someone who can help me with both. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to integrate my spiritual experiences, and I'm trying to, I guess, just come to terms with this other dark stuff. Mm -hmm. Where do I go to get help?
3: I could have used someone like you growing up. (laughs)
1: I was really lost, (laughs) but, but you know, that's one way to learn the territory, isn't it, Russell?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm, I, I'd like to, I, I, I tend to want to kind of create a kind of linear bio of these podcasts. If you, if you forgive me, Um, there's, we've touched on a lot of different areas like, uh, uh, Institute for Transpersonal Psychology, Integration, uh, Suzuki Roshi, Paramahansa Yogananda, um, your childhood with your parents that was maybe left you wanting. Um, I, I'd like to just start from the beginning. Um, (laughs) You, you were, were your parents, your, your dad was a, was, was at a Harvard. He was a physician. He was at Harvard medical school. Was he from Massachusetts? Did they, did they move there?
1: <laughs> so, um, my dad grew up outside of New York city, New Rochelle, mm-hmm. New Rochelle, yeah. so not very far away. And yeah. my mom grew up outside of Boston and, um, uh, They met because my dad met my mother's brother in medical school (laughs) and it all unfolded after that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So you're, would you, I mean, I think you'd have to kind of describe yourself as coming from a a well-to-do family, um, a, a nice family, uh, not very (laughs) different from, from mine and, uh, (laughs) And you grew up in that in that um, in that environment, and yet you 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 said that um your parents had had issues, and you found yourself kind of wanting a, a different way of life, and I wonder if you could speak to that at all.
1: Sure. so <clears throat> I would say that that my background was privileged. I don't know about that well to do. Maybe I say bio, but I, was,
3: I, was, I didn't want to insult you by using the word privilege. Well yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, to do you know, like I mean that kind of nails it. I was given a lot of um, experiences that that other people don't have in you mm-hmm. know, summer vac- whether it was summer vacations, traveling or <clears throat> camps, you know, various yes. things. So I and and a, a very good um, school elementary school. So I I'm very happy about that. But in terms of emotional what we now call emotional intelligence, being able to name your feelings, being able to talk about your feelings, being able to listen as other people talk about their feelings. We didn't have that. There was my parents were not educated in that. They weren't skilled in that and so that was kind of a desert zone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. To bring up the environment. And then, in <laughs> spir- spiritually speaking, um, my mother had some affinity for Unitarianism, and my father had some affinity for the Episcopal Church, but there were no prayers said, you know, at uh, Grace or anything like that, or no conversation about God that I can remember. There mm-hmm. was plenty of song, which was beautiful, singing mm-hmm. around yeah. the piano. So Mm -hmm. I got some really great music. And some of that came from uh, church music, you know, hymns. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, But there was no conversation. So how does a kid formulate, you know, questions like, why are we here? Where do we go after death? What happens at death? Yeah. Like that. Mm-hmm. so here enter your dog in the background and i'm oh,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah she, she's so, also curious about death
1: and it was it was actually being around my dogs that taught me a lot about all that because oh, wow yeah with the dogs you know there was i yeah. watched a dachshund give birth in my bathtub and um and then there were some dogs that died and yeah. you know but there was confrontations as a kid and and there was just a huge amount of love, affection from animals. And yeah. <laughs> so <It's> anyway, <laughs> anyway, the spiritual and emotional side of things was not really attended to, is where mm-hmm. I'm going. In in within my family of origin.
4: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and and I and I knew from other circumstances, like other families, as well as animals and nature. That there was something else, but I wasn't quite sure how to integrate it and move mm-hmm. in that direction. I was kind of lost in that department.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, did you did you consciously set out on a spiritual journey looking for answers?
1: I didn't know the word spiritual, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know that was a, a, um, just not in my vocabulary. Really, I knew yeah. about religion, but right. spirituality. But I had I had, had uh, very profound dreams, some of them lucid dreams, about Native Americans um, coming, oh, coming to get me, actually, in my yeah. Life, yeah. and to release me from the house I, w- I was brought up in.
3: Wow. Oh, that kind of coming to get you. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah not coming to get you, but like coming to save you. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, I did interpret it in different ways. Yeah. you know at first it was scary and then i started realizing wait a minute i feel really at home where where they're taking me
4: mm-hmm. so
1: so there was something something going on innerly. <laughs> you yeah. know and and then uh, as time went on i was able to meet people from that tradition and i had mm-hmm. a real affinity with them and i was able to meet people also who were interested in psychic uh, phenomena and yeah. that was of great interest. But, uh, the most Im- important event happened when I fell in love with a German man and, and he was studying to be a psychoanalyst under a man by the name of Graf Karl Fried von Dorkheim. Mm-hmm. And, and this man had gone to, um, Japan in the second world war and had learned about Zen and the art of archery and had set up what we would call today an alternative residential care facility for people in spiritual emergency people who were you know psychologically having a hard time yeah spiritually having some real desire to move forward (laughs) into Mm -hmm. something they didn't quite uh know how to articulate and um and so he had this beautiful place in the black forest where people would come and live and they'd do art and they'd learn the art of um the art of archery from the Zen more Zen tradition, yeah. yeah they'd do dancing, they'd meet with him, he might read read your palm or practice what he learned in more conventional psychiatry. There were a lot of different things he drew from, and they were meditating together,
2: wow, and so you you lived you lived with him in this I community? Met or him, or you... I met okay. him and it just okay.
1: completely blew my mind, yeah, um yeah. And so that interaction, and and also being in love with this particular man in Germany yeah. when I was eighteen was absolutely life changing for me. Opened me up to, really, what I wanted to do in my life.
3: Amazing. There, there's a there's a line by Allen Ginsberg. Um, I saw the the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, and I think that seemed like that was that was rife. At that time, there was a lot of young men doing a lot of hallucinogens <laughs> and and having a lot of unexplained pranic uh developments with with really no structure or fabric or or uh critical analysis of what to do about it so having a having a farm for those kids sounds like a nice <laughs> a nice idea. I could have used a farm like that a I healing
1: think. farm a healing farm
3: <laughs> where i could but you know, it's it's
1: well, we're talking about nineteen sixty four when this event happened for me. It was right yeah. on the cusp of a lot of young men going, Oh, let's do some exploration with X, Y, or Z. Yeah.
4: And
1: and uh <clears throat> but but I I actually ended up marrying someone who was one of those young men who was doing the exploration. Oh, uh-huh. But I didn't know that he. I I didn't consciously get what that was all about because we met when we were both members of a Zen Buddhist community, mm-hmm. yeah. and he was dressed up as a monk, and I yeah. was not asked to wear monk's, monk's clothes. But you know, I was I was there, dedicated mm-hmm. to do like a three month silent retreat.
4: Yeah,
1: and uh, so we didn't do a lot of dating in that environment, <laughs> yeah. but we did feel attraction. And mm-hmm. we didn't know that there was something very special going on between us. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have the opportunity to ask a lot of questions like what what happened? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what got you here, you know? And why was it that you um yeah, got really involved with a lot of drugs?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and was, s-
1: he was that was his way of of getting out of the bubble that he was brought up in, which was also quite formal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so then he dove into meditation and you were diving into meditation as well. And that was that the beginning, the origin of your sort of spiritual journey or your journey into like understanding something beyond what you were familiar with at that time.
1: It was, it was really at, at, um, Graf Durkheim, a couple of, Mm two or three years earlier that, yeah. that everything really started. But yeah. uh, it certainly took a huge step forward when Suzuki Roshi, who was yeah. also acknowledged internationally as being self-realized or enlightened, he was yeah. our teacher and he was living on the campus yeah. with us. And so when I did, you know, my five days of meditation in order to express my dedication to be part of the community,
4: hmm
1: when I had my ecstatic experience in the middle of it, and I said, oh, I've reached the point. You know, I'm done. I'm cooked. <laughs> and I ran to his cabin, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, he'll tell. He'll give me a gold star. <laughs> well, he, he, he nodded. He was very nice. <clears throat> and he didn't say, no, you've done the wrong thing. And he didn't put me down. And the most empowering thing he said to me, which was a little um, off-putting for me, but not bad, is he said. Just go back and continue meditating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so he did his job, and I didn't feel disempowered, and it was yeah. really important that I went back, because as you know, it can be a roller coaster ride.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Doing an intensive, you can go into the highs, and then they yeah. go into the lows. Yeah. <laughs> lows. <laughs> around That's and true. around and up and down. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
3: It's that's interesting. I I I read a book um about Allen Ginsberg's trip through India and he had had his ecstatic experience in New York where he he had shouted to the the tenement buildings that he had seen God. And then he was you know shooting a lot of heroin and going through <laughs> India and he met the Dalai Lama at Dharmasala and um he was kind of Quizzing him on his experience about whether or not you know he should meditate or not or whether he meditated, and the dialogue and said no no i I have my practice you know uh cemented. I don't need to um uh work so hard at meditating anymore and Alan you had had no discipline whatsoever and and left the meeting kind of convinced of himself was like oh i don't have to meditate either i don't have to practice at all and i and i was really struck by that conversation of of the total lack of of discipline and the total lack of structure and again the kind of you know an ecstatic young man full quite full of himself meeting someone who's part of an ancient lineage and an ancient organization and just completely missing the mark. And then it it kind of brings me back to that that same kind of notion of of how at sea we are with these with these um with these experiences.
1: With the just... ecstatic experiences?
3: Yeah, with the ecstatic experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was at sea. You know, the the story I just told you, I was at sea. I had an ecstatic <laughs> experience. I didn't know what to do other than run to my teacher. Mm -hmm. which
4: was
1: fortunate, and it was fortunate that he told me what he did. But, you know, I I was just um, reading a passage in Autobiography of a Yogi last night, and and he was also uh, talking about the lineage bearers, and he was saying it's important for those who are really here to be teachers uh, uh, for others to give them a model of what's important. And so he was intimating that even though he had possibly reached that um, uh, altitude, (laughs) spiritual altitude, where he didn't really have to meditate or have that discipline, he did it anyway, every day, uh, because Mm -hmm. that's what he was suggesting to his students. And he wanted Mm -hmm. to model to them what that life was like. And unfortunately, when we're in an ecstatic state, and I've, I've been there a few times, Uh, it's really easy to hear what we want to hear. (laughs) At least it was for me, you know? And unless Suzuki at that point had been really clear with me, I think I would have kind of gone dancing into the woods. Mm -hmm. And, you know, felt like, isn't it great? I get to be here. I'm in this wonderful Zen Buddhist community. Suzuki's right over there and I feel great. I'm just going to go. Dancing through the woods and swimming in the narrows. Fabulous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it it's such a
3: it's such a phenomenal book, the autobiography of a yogi. And it it, it came to me at just the right time. And it I I think I had just taken like a physics class and and it it sort of I projected what I'd read in into autobiography of yogi right into that into that book, into that um uh, science. Um, what I mean to say is, is that it. I was so struck by the notion of what of what God was, and what God could be, and it was just such a shift in perspective. Rather than God being something there, and perhaps embodied and personified, which always sort of seemed a little suspicious to me, <laughs> that God was literally all things and so just the act of moving your own hands was a kind of act of god the 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 danger being that you could start to think of yourself as god you know which is <laughs> true but also like really uh uh dangerous <laughs> you know? it was it was it was just it was just perfect and i and i felt like it it threw up the entire western civilization on its head Literally, turn the triangle upside down
2: do <laughs> <Into> a headstand, <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah.
1: And so, what did you where'd you go with that? In other than turning upside down and starting practicing <laughs> out the yoga,
3: yeah, that's exactly what I did. Yeah, really? like yeah, started, I turned upside down and started practicing <laughs> out the yoga, like, oh, uh-huh. yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, it, I just went with that.
2: I think it's interesting what you were saying, though, because my um, Pranayama teacher, who is for sure like a self-realized teacher, you know, doesn't want students even really. <laughs> um, he he has, has told, you know, me before, his teacher said to him, never give up your practice, mm. like always stay to your practice no matter what. And I think there's some, um, I mean, it feels like, yeah, there's some like, you know, integrity to that, like you were saying. But also, um, I don't know, I feel like many of these spiritual masters, like when you look at, you know, Osho or um, even uh, Swami Rama, you know, they kind of like have had obviously a very deep and real like enlightenment like spiritual experience but then it kind of goes sideways i think (laughs) at some point where you know i don't know like something something's going on there that's allowing these this chaos and abuse to happen within themselves and then also you know that's emanating out into the communities that they created
3: but not everyone
2: what do you mean, not everyone?
3: We, it's, or, there's a sort of sense of inevitability.
2: No, I think if you give up your practice, which I think ah. some of these these teachers do, once they've had this this enlightenment, or maybe they continue practicing for some time, but then it kind of, you know, I don't know. <laughs> they you like, end up
3: like Osho up, shooting drugs yeah, and, and, and inhaling amusing.
2: laughing gas, yeah, and yeah. it turns into uh-huh. some kind of like crazy... Wild, wild country. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Wasn't that a film?
4: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, one of the things that's coming to me is is a conversation that happened when Suzuki Roshi was alive and hmm. someone was asking him, you know, once you're enlightened, like, does it stick and you're just enlightened for the rest of your life? And he was basically making it very clear. Enlightenment is something that happens every second. And you have to work on it every second. In other words, mm-hmm. you're, it's not a static thing.
0: It's, yeah. mm-hmm. it's
1: something you create for yourself or move into deliberately every second. Mm-hmm. And of course, the inherent in that is it makes it a lot easier if you continue your practice, whether it's yeah. yoga or meditation or both or whatever it is. But yeah. uh, he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't like wandering around really pushing people, but it was very clear. Discipline is extremely important. Mm Yeah.
2: Extremely important. Yeah. I love that because I think sometimes like as spiritual seekers, as practitioners, we think that, you know, you're going to have this experience or you're going to have this awakening or self-realization and then ta-da, like you can can check the box and move on. But like, what's, what comes after that? There's nothing after that. You You have to keep doing
3: you can quit your job and or, <laughs> yeah. live on other people's
2: couches. Yeah, yeah, right? Like like you say it's not something that you just get to tick the box like, oh, self-realized, here I go, right? You have to continue down that that path. You have to continue cultivating the soil and nurturing the growth.
1: And I think, you know, in, in the translation of the eastern practices and philosophies coming to us, the goal wasn't really made clear. Or if it was made clear, it was like different with different people. And yeah. I think one of the things that, that uh, folks run into, and I certainly did too with the ecstatic experiences I had when I was younger, was, oh, I don't have to be clear about where I'm going. I've made it.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, yeah. the goalposts have disappeared in a way. They're They're not important anymore. I don't have to put it in my mind because I've gone beyond that mind place. But uh, on the other hand, I think it's uh, I've I've watched a lot of people, and more clients are coming to me who've said, I, I've asked them, well, what's your meditation practice? And they say, well, I like God guided meditation, and I go to YouTube, and I, you know, it's kind of a different one every day, or I I do one maybe for a week, and then I go on to another one, and and uh, and so it's really it's really helpful for me me it makes me more peaceful they say
4: yeah
1: and i'm i'm growing but um but there's no like anchor point Mm -hmm. of of, this is what i want this is what i'm going for and so maybe in that person's mind is a sense of i want that ecstasy experience a lot and i don't want to be taking drugs i want that ecstasy experience i've read about it but yeah. what what's that all about? And what are the underpinnings of it? And yeah, um, so R- Russell, you mentioned you'd read autobiography of a yogi, and you probably remember from that, you know, he talks a lot about the ethics of the and the, a person needs to have a really ethical way of life if they want to mm-hmm. continue to grow. And it's not yeah. that it's not that image like God will love you if you follow the rules. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. more like the God from who sits on a big golden throne in the sky point of view, right? And, mm. and judges us, and that's his job. Mm-hmm. But, but more um, a place of, well, if you want the technology to move into that enlightened state, And so you want to know what the steps are to move into that enlightened state, which is, of course, being happy (laughs) and being really happy (laughs) and realize that, uh, you know, leading an ethical way of life is an important part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I love it. Yeah, me too. And it it had a big impact on me when I, I was reading one of the books that he's written and he's written 20 now. Or then, rather. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> he stopped writing
2: it, a while back. <laughs> back
1: he died. But um, anyway, the, the books have been published now, some of them after after he passed. And one of the things that was quoted was, you know, a lot of people believe like the Ten Commandments are what yeah. God uses to judge us. And if we haven't followed the Ten Commandments, then we're thrown into hell. Some awful you know, video around that,
4: mm-hmm.
1: that people carry yeah. internally. And instead, the point is made, those are not 10 commandments as in, do, unless you do them, you're going to be in big trouble and not get any Christmas presents. It's, <laughs> it's more like, <laughs> if you want the technology to move into those higher states, follow these. They're basically stepping stones to happiness. Yeah,
4: mm-hmm.
1: Boy, yeah. that sure shifted my point of view.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's not I that, love
1: that. Yeah, it's not that I was living in that more Christian-oriented place because I wasn't part of a Christian church at that particular time when I was reading it, but all of us have been brought up in the West with a pretty yeah. Christianized sure. <laughs> culture. And so yeah. I, I think a lot of us on a deep level kind of are wed to that archetype of Oh yeah, God. The one the guy who sits on the throne with a big stick and judges us. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. When I lived in Thailand, I really realized how um <laughs> enculturated we are versus like living in a culture that was, you know, Buddhist. based on Buddhist philosophy. Very different understandings of of actions and behaviors, and right and wrong, and if there even is a right or wrong, different ways of responding and interpreting events that happen to you as a person. And I, I was amazed actually to see, like, oh, even if you're not Christian, you're still very enculturated in this dual world where there's right and wrong, and good and bad, and this way and the wrong way, <laughs> right? Yeah. And and when you grow up in a more Eastern kind of context uh, that's based more philosophically on Buddhism or even, um, you know, Indian sort of yoga philosophy, it's more about um, this is the way it is. How, how am I responding, right? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I accepting? Am I rejecting? Am I doing something that's helpful to the situation or harmful? And so Mm -hmm. I always like to think of those, you know, ethical precepts. You know, in yoga, we have the yamas and the niyamas, but thinking of them like non harming and truthfulness and non stealing, it's not about, you know, being good or bad or right or wrong behaviors, even. It's about what's going to be helpful to your growth. If you're you know, continually stuck in harming others, then you're creating this karmic cycle, right? And also the harm you have to generate in yourself first in order to harm others is extreme. You can't reach self-realization. You can't reach this awaken, awaken place if you're generating all of this inside of yourself all the time that's then being projected out into the world. And so it's not helpful to your spiritual practice. If you don't care about spiritual practice, then, you know, whatever. But it's more about, like you're saying, having that goal, right? And understanding, like, why are you doing it? You're not yeah. doing it to be, a like, a good person, in quotes, right? You're doing it because you want to have an easy path. You want to live in that space of sukha, right? Like, that good space <laughs> that peaceful, happy, you know, positive space as much as you can, because it's much easier to, to reach enlightenment. It's much easier to experience self-realization when you're cultivating that kind of space. If you're cultivating suffering all the time, you are just generating suffering, right? It's very hard to, to awaken to love and infinity and beauty and all of the things that, that are, you know, reality in, in many ways when you're stuck mm. in that other negative cycle.
1: Yeah, well said. Thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, I just I think it's I, I love hearing I love hearing that take on it too of of what you were saying because it reminds me of how how we often, you know, put our own westernized understanding of things on eastern philosophy or we look for Ways that it reinforces our own understanding of mm-hmm. the world, and mm-hmm. that kind of keeps us stuck, actually, and also confused. I was, uh, confused, I think, is a good word to use too. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: David, um, there's a, the historian David Graeber um, wrote about this this notion that you guys are, are talking about of this kind of Christian Christianized um, projection. And he was talking about this kind of – his book, Debt, and that when you're – in a Christianized world, you kind of grow up in a world where you're conditioned to view your, your life as a, as, a, as a debt, that you owe someone something mm. for your, your – the, the basis for being alive. And then that person is going to judge whether or not you pay back the credit that you owe. And so there, that's very, very different from what you were just describing. Yeah. Walking around in the world where your existence is about being, and following, you know, the just the the, the miracle of that. <laughs> maybe that maybe that's still a kind of Christianized um, projection on on being. But um, <laughs> yeah. I I want to I want to ask you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh about Suzuki Roshi, you were you were there uh I guess from uh sixty seven to seventy one. Yeah. Is that right? Correct. And where was that? Oh. Where was the center?
1: Well, the first interaction that I had with the San Francisco Zen Center was in <sighs> Was not Green Gulch Farm because that came later, but is often associated. But it was called Tassahara. It still is Tassahara, and it's in the Big Sur Mountains.
3: Right. Okay. Yeah. I was
1: fortunate to get there basically right after the gate had opened. You know, they were just opening it up. They had purchased it. It was going to be dedicated to the to Zen practice, but they were also having guests come in in the summertime. Where uh, through whom they could raise money to keep the monastery going, right? Okay, like special
2: workshops or retreats or
1: well, not even that. that. In the beginning, it was like give them what they have had before, so they'll keep coming, which is meat and potatoes, and they want to go, right? uh, Right. You know that particular kind of diet, which is very different than what the monastics were being fed, and uh, with. And thats I'm not judging it. I'm just saying, yeah. real different. Because I worked in the yeah. cabin. I remember it was real different. And <laughs> I, so they were in the uh, people who were used to coming up there and paying for the gift of staying in the cabins and eating good food and right. going to the hot springs. Yeah. They were really subsidizing the growth of the monastery at that point. But
3: but that must have been nineties That must have been really sort of terrifying for your parents. <laughs> You you left Massachusetts and went all the way out to California, which is like the great frontier, like a wild land, and then moved to to San Francisco to the to the Zen Center. Like that's just I can't imagine anything more horrific for <laughs> Episcopalian parents.
1: <laughs> you ask amazing questions. <laughs> uh, so uh just to to reel back my life story a little bit more. My parents actually separated when I was 16. My mother moved to Vermont. My father stayed okay. in the Washington area because he was at that point doing research at the National Institutes of Health. Mm-hmm. And um, my my mother um, wasn't aware that I was moving to California to join a Zen Buddhist center. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I wasn't either. Yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I thought what I was doing was... Picking up on an invitation, I had to be a teaching assistant for a well-known artist at the oh. University of California. I had yeah. been given two um, invitations by two different people: one in Canada, one in California, to come and be their TA as an artist in the university. Wow! And I what, thought, what artist was that? But cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so ceram a ceramic uh, art artist.
3: Really, the not the guy that does those pillars. Pillars, um, uh, pillars with like little heads on top of them. That's ceramic art. Never mind. Um,
1: no, um, for some reason, it's just escaping me. I, I'm gonna, I'm going to claim a senior moment right now. <laughs> <laughs> let's call it. Let's call it discretion. And, okay. and so you, you would take, you take... <laughs> <laughs> you t- Robert, Ar- Robert Arneson is the name of the man. Oh yeah. I was, that's who I was thinking.
3: Okay. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing.
1: Wow. Yeah. So he invited me to be a TA and I said, Oh, that sounds good. I need to escape whatever patterning is going on in the Eastern East coast. I don't yeah. know what it is, but I got, I got to leave. <laughs> and so hmm. I went and um, to finish my university because I I left the university I was in and in, the, in um, on the East Coast and went to the West Coast, wow! To be a student and a TA, so that got me out there. And then uh, I had the opportunity also to work with Peter Volkos, if you know the ceramic art world. Well, he was mm-hmm. he was at the top of it, and he was working at he was teaching at the uh, in Berkeley at the time. So I got to work also with him. And then at a certain point, I went okay, I've been meditating, and there's something about meditation I really, really want that I'm not getting out of the art world. Yeah. And that took me to Tassahara for a weekend just to check it out, you know? Oh, what's right. going on down there? So I drove yeah. down, and I thought, I'm at home. I'm really at home. I'm really, really, really at home here. <laughs> and so that um, I, I made a shift and and wow. went down there and they accepted me as long as I would meditate for five days first.
4: Yeah.
2: Incredible.
1: To show so my that, dedication.
2: Yeah. How did you then come into the um, fellowship for self-realization? That's a pretty long story, but I'll,
1: <laughs> I'll make it shorter. Um, okay. And, and that is, so Suzuki Roshi passed away in 1971. And that was the reason that I, um, left the Zen center really in, I mean, I I left the dedicate, the dedicated place I'd been in. Um, and the person who was going to follow him was someone that I didn't have a sense of, uh, trust in as much as I trusted Suzuki. Mm Yeah. So, um, so then I, I, I was able to actually learn from some native Americans who I ran into synchronistically. And mm-hmm. that occupied a very important place in my life for 20 years. Mm. Wow. Um, and these were people who were recognized in their tribes as the spiritual and legal head of their tribes. Wow! Well, okay. For one, the spiritual and legal for the other spiritual. And so that was extremely fortunate. And then, um, I was teaching for over ten years and traveling internationally and teaching a particular course. And that took me to Brazil to teach people who were learning how to teach the same course. Hmm. And at that point I I met up with the spiritual healing that was going on in Brazil. Yeah. Independent of the ayahuasca tradition. And a lot of people these days say Brazil. Equals ayahuasca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it equals a lot in Brazil, and it's not just carnival, and it's not just ayahuasca, but they have a <laughs> like spiritual tradition there called Spiritism.
3: Mm-hmm. Which, um, you have a you have a book brought, actually, Spiritism: Bridging Spirituality and Health, that you wrote on the on the subject.
1: That's actually a documentary film that you're quoting. Oh,
3: forgive me. I'm that's
1: sorry. all right. You're forgiven. But <laughs> I, I did write two other books on on spiritism because oh, I was so profoundly impressed. Well, so imagine if you're, um. we'll take it back to the story we did before. <laughs> if you're a yeah. young person, you're having a hugely ecstatic experience, and then you're thrown into the depths. You realize that you, are, you were sexually abused as a kid. And now you're kind of all over the place because you're having both simultaneously basically and you're not sleeping well and um people think you're acting very oddly Mm -hmm. and uh and yeah check 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 (laughs) and uh you're not uh, able to really do the household chores you usually do. so the trash is building up and the children are screaming and uh, you're not going to work on time and you might be losing your job and things are not looking good. So someone says, why don't you go over to the spiritist psychiatric hospital and check it out? So mm-hmm. they check you out physically, meaning that you got a physical from an MD. Okay. Yeah. Check the box. You're fine. This is obviously, we're just making this up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, then you see a uh, social worker find out if there's psychosocial stressors, like racism, poverty, um, mm-hmm. can't work, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. drugs, you know, whatever. It, it's all kind of becomes part of your... Of them looking at you and assessing yeah. and then you see a medical intuitive who says oh mm. this is what's going on um maybe you actually might be a uh, energy healer in the rough and <laughs> mm-hmm. in the integration process we're happy mm. to help you with that and also provide training so that you can become an energy healer uh-huh so this is not, that's, fantastic. Sounding, that's not sounding like a conventional hospital. In not way. whatsoever.
3: Not at all. No, it, it actually sounds like a, like a segment from the film Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> it's just very, like, we're going to, it's, it's uh it's so, it's such an organizational, it's, it's, oh, it's just too surreal for words to even, he, to even hear that, that process.
1: So, Russell, I had the opportunity to um travel to to visit some of these psychiatric hospitals. They mm-hmm. also provide a similar kind of care in community centers in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Thirteen thousand of these community centers, fifty spiritist psychiatric hospitals. And they're not into proselytizing, so you probably never heard about it. And I never heard about it wow. even in Gretchen. It was like total.
3: 13,000. Invisible. 13,000.
1: If,
3: if you told me that there were 13,000 students, I wouldn't have believed you.
1: There are a lot more. So, yeah. 20 to 40 million Brazilian people access these Spiritist community centers or hospitals if they want to um, to come to terms with the spiritual side of whatever disruption they're having whether yeah. it's physical emotional or spiritual so
3: wow yeah that's okay. extraordinary
1: so that that doesn't mean they replace allopathic medical stuff with spiritism but mm-hmm. it might mean you know they go to their dentist and find out that there's something going on with their jaw and then they also go to a spiritist center and say well you know, there may be some kind of karmic issue going on here, or let's do some spiritual healing into your jaw, and this might be helpful. So they're seeing both. Mm-hmm. It's not a replacement for allopathic care. But in some cases, people can be completely healed through um, practicing asanas, doing meditation, getting mm-hmm. energy work, things of that nature. And it creates a space for it, and people know that it's valuable and it, and it can work.
3: I, I just want to, as an aside, I just want to say that um, my sciatica and lower back pain were healed by a, a session that I took at the um, Institute for Transpersonal um, Psychology, psychology uh, ITP, which is, they, they yeah, I just, um, <clears throat> the founders there were doing a, um, a, a session on um, long chronic pain. Oh. And how how deeply uh, emotional it can be that you kind of sometimes want to hold on to the story, and they did a they did a um, an exercise with us on on mental like a mental release fantasy. Uh-huh And it just like I felt my um, piriformis syndrome just unlock right in the room. How it was an extraordinary, wonderful thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Emancipation. Yeah,
3: but I, I, I wonder if um we, I think we may have um skipped over, but like after you were at Suzuki Roshi's place, did you then you went to graduate school at ITP?
1: I did go to graduate school, but it was later.
3: So oh, it was later. Okay. And,
1: and actually, I I appreciate your looking at this historically. <laughs> but, uh, so it was actually. Uh, when I was in my thirties that I Mm -hmm. went to ITP and it was um, Institute for transpersonal psychology. So, so um, intervening in those years, I did get married to that Zen Buddhist monk (laughs) and have a child. (laughs) And, uh, and, and then we actually separated. And uh, Mm -hmm. so I was a single mom for a while. And then Mm -hmm. I went back to graduate school when, when my son was 10 years old Mm -hmm. so so anyway that took place in the 80s yeah and then and then I started doing the teaching um after that and then got to Brazil and then around after I'd been in Brazil really spending six months out of every year there because I got really involved with Doing research, creating documentary film, writing books, et cetera, because the world didn't know about this amazing stuff that was going on there. Right. And and so, um, so I got involved with that. And then in in 2012, to go back to where we started in this interview, (laughs) I became very aware of some abuses that were going on with one particular healer. Okay. Who I would prefer not to name. Sure. But, But, um, in, in that, Uh, experience I became aware that he was actually raping people um, that he was supposed to be a healer for (laughs) Mm
4: -hmm.
1: and uh, and that was uh, that whole circumstance was just horrifying for me absolutely Mm -hmm. horrifying I left and completely severed my relationship with that community but I went on, but that was not a spiritist organization.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So right. it was spiritualist, just mm-hmm. to kind of fine tune what we're talking about. And, uh, and I continued with my um, associates who were spiritists. Some of them are psychiatrists. So if you can imagine now, here, here's another mind bender. Imagine a psychiatrist who's also a psychic medium, and does disobsession dis- dis- work, meaning spirit release work, in the mm-hmm. evening times. Um, sometimes in the hospital, sometimes in the community center, sometimes training mediums, sometimes training energy healers, and then to make uh, and that's all for free. But mm-hmm. then to put bread and butter on the table, she um, has a private practice as a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And she's also very well versed with family systems therapy and she's also yeah. very well versed with homeopathy. Mm-hmm. So um so how many psychiatrists do you know who have that that kind of a <laughs> not yeah, many
3: <laughs> psychiatrists and maybe psychologists, you know, but maybe not psychiatrists. Yeah. Yeah. No.
1: I'm talking about psychiatrists because they're even, yeah. usually their training is even more narrow, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. Psychologists, especially are even being asked these days to really broaden out their, right. their yeah. know-how, especially with the psychedelic yeah. movement, but yeah. psychiatrists. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I still maintain strong associations with, um psychiatrists and medical doctors who are spiritist and I mm-hmm. take uh, once wow. a year I take um a group of healthcare providers down to Brazil and spend a week there so they interact with these people and get to see the whole paradigm in process in mm-hmm. the hospitals and in the community centers normaliza And so, yeah, it's a paradigm that has been life-changing for all the people who have gone.
2: It's so interesting because it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, the way that midwifery has come back into our Canadian medical system in particular, where if you are not having a high-risk pregnancy, pretty much – I mean, at least this is what it was like for me in the West Coast of Canada when I was pregnant with my son – is they said, well, you need to go get yourself a midwife. <laughs> it's like, what? Okay, sure. <laughs> and, you know, the midwives are then also being paid by our, our healthcare system. It's not like a, an additional thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can go to the hospital and have your baby with your midwife. And then, you know, if there's any problems, of course, there's a doctor kind of on hand who can come in and assess, you know, if there's some emergency. But otherwise, you can have your whole birth experience with a midwife. And it almost is like um, this, this spiritism and this tradition in Brazil that you're speaking of, is like, kind of taken shamanic kind of healers in a sense you know spiritual kind of shamanic tribalist sort of um the same as midwifery right it, except it's with spiritual practice yeah. and integrating it into a, a more um a post-modern medical system i don't know like a like mm-hmm. a like integrating it into the medical system in a way that's like we need to take care of the spirit and there's a, a particular you know, tradition that we can bring in and integrate. And, and it's really beautiful to hear this.
1: Well, that's, that's well put because if, if you do go to a spiritist psychiatric hospital, they do have everything there that you'd find in a conventional hospital. It looks, I mean, it doesn't look exactly the same because they usually aren't well as well funded. (laughs) So some of the buildings are older but yeah. um, but on the other hand, you know, if people really need meds, let's say they can't sleep at all and nothing works, then yeah. psychiatric meds can do the job. Mm-hmm. But they aren't over relying on psych meds as we right. tend to do in the West, right? Yeah. And and so it is different that way. And and I I've asked many times, Harmony. Well, gee whiz, this sure feels a lot like uh, shamanism to me. You know, right. spirit release, energy work. And um and some of the spiritists will say, Oh yeah, there's a lot a lot of harmony with it. And some mm-hmm. of the spiritists will say, No, 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 wait a minute. We started from a French academic who was <laughs> right. really studying mediumship and and channeled materials and what can we learn from channelers. But he was a French academic. So so it all came from that, really. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> But you probably know Brazil has a lot of integration that we don't have as much in North America. And so the shamanic world, well, let's say it this way, the people who came from Africa to to be workers and slaves and the indigenous people and the Europeans that came into Brazil all have intermarried to an extent that we don't see in the West Mm -hmm. as yet. And Mm -hmm. so the shamanic tradition was kind of, easier to accept for everybody yeah. yeah
3: yeah we had a we had a guest on the show who was um uh was telling us that uh african the african uh ex-slave population is like over 60 percent of brazil and so it's very very different from you know the the five percent that you see in in north america or oh well, gosh that's a lot less in canada isn't it um <laughs> One thing, one thing i wanted to to say was uh the reason i i had moved to to san francisco is my my ex-wife was what was going to itp to study oh. to be a, a psychotherapist um it's a whole other story there but um one of the amazing things is uh my yoga student uh the late uh frank sclafani um got her a job at kaiser permanente and one of the extraordinary things that i that i saw that i was witness to there in that organization was their they realizing how inc- how much money they would save on um healthcare. On, on healthcare if they could get people um i forget what this word is called when you get them before they get sick preventative preventative care uh-huh. preventative care and so they the whole kind of institution said we could save billions of dollars a year if we could keep our members from being sick cuz we're you know basically in, in an HMO we're an insurance conglomerate and we lose money when our when our patients get sick and we have to care for them so we we could keep them from being sick then we're we're going to be making a lot more money and what you what they what i saw was the mfts and the the marriage and family therapists were all being pushed you need to get our clients meditating you need our you need to get our clients doing yoga you need to get our clients involved in more shamanic practices so they can have a and it's part of their they called it the, the be well campaign and we can get them well so they don't get sick and it's just it it's like it when I'm, when I'm, what you're describing, Brazil, and what I, what, what the that, what I saw at, at Kaiser's, like there's, you could really see how the one could grow into the other, but it's just such, it's just so much in its infancy, but you know, we 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 need m- just so we need more and more people like you, kind of, you know, advocating for it.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm doing my best. <laughs> I'm doing my best, Russell. And, you know, there there are people like you and maybe Harmony, you're, you're with us in this nest who say, wow, we really need this. You know, this yeah. is a mm-hmm. paradigm. It's actually been, you know, alive and well in Brazil for over 100 years. And so they've been mm-hmm. cultivating it and making, you know, progress with it and still doing research to make things better. So... Um, anyway, it's we've got a model here. Why don't we incorporate yeah. it? It's working. Totally. But, um, it's so very different than what we have here, and yeah. we're still, you know, in the conventional world, we're still trying to figure out like what's consciousness and <laughs> is there a spirit? What is that? And, is there uh, a spirit? Yeah. and shouldn't we just be treating the body because the body's kind of just like a machine, right? It's just like <laughs> if it breaks down, you replace the part. Or you
3: put
2: yeah. some kind of different gasoline in
1: the in the <laughs>
3: yeah. cut, 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 cut. Treat. I'd love to mm. talk
2: to you about about like I mean, there's just so many things we could talk to you about. This I mean, so many different directions I wanna go. Um, I love this idea, like, you know, I think as our 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 understanding, maybe even our scientific understanding of the mind body connection increases. Maybe there'll be more like of this integration happening because so much of getting sick has to do with, you know, we say it's stress, but what is stress? Stress is like a, a mental construct, right? It's how we're responding to a, a circumstance that is neither here nor there. It's neutral, but what's stressful is our, our thoughts and then our feelings. And then that affects, you know, things going on in our body and, then we you know create illness so I think as we start to like integrate this more and it's like it's coming you know I feel it coming in in our our culture and in our society you know hopefully (laughs) we'll we'll get there but I want to talk to you more even about like spirit and like like this idea because we always have this debate. I'm like a big. I love the word spirituality. I love this idea of spirit and essence, and you know whether it's your prana or your purusha or your individual consciousness.
3: Where I'm more of a materialist.
2: <laughs> I don't know. You don't like this word spirit for some reason.
3: Oh, I really don't. <laughs> so, so spiritual what? is the is You're really gets You don't my, like spiritual. I love
2: spiritual. So. Mm. Because I love all things of the spirit. And you always talk about how spirit comes from the the Latin root, right?
3: Inspirare. Which
2: is breath. Mm. So it's like totally connected to our breathing. But all that aside. I am
3: interested in the breath (laughs) as a... You know, spiritual meaning of interest in the breath.
2: Yeah. What is it? Like what is this this awakening? I mean, this is your area of expertise. You have an entire school built on this of people who are having like self realization. Like, is it spirit? Is what it is energy? It? Is it consciousness? <laughs> and and then how does it go wrong?
1: <laughs> wow, what a question. So, one of the words you didn't use, either one of you, is soul. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, in?
3: I would never use that word.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I just had an inkling you would say that, Russell. I don't know why my intuition is just right today. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Ooh, my word. You know why I don't use soul? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you why I, I tend not to use soul. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it has such a, a Christianized...
1: Ah. Um, Oh, interesting.
2: Color to it that I feel like it's, it's a very particular thing in Christianity that doesn't translate to Eastern philosophy as much. So that's why I always tend to stay away from it. And it also has a platonic context to me, which is also. Oh, Oh, like find your soulmate kind of thing. Yeah. And just like the tripartite soul and like, you know, the whole like philosophical understanding of soul. I don't know. Well, here, here's a curveball. Canadians ball.
3: don't have much soul.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we got to go to the southern part of the U.S. We for do. soul. We do. We have to
3: go to Louisiana. <laughs> to oh, the yeah. I love mm. soul
2: music.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, Truly. Terrible joke. But you are going to tell us about soul.
1: Well, actually, I was thinking, how about a curveball? i just bring in a, a, a another word. Yeah. That probably neither one of you know, called perispirit.
3: Perry's spirit
1: aha i gotcha Mm. (laughs) so neither one of you know it so maybe that will just create a a little more neutral zone yeah tell us so it's it's from the spiritists (laughs) and if you can imagine um that there's some both of you being into yoga maybe there's some notion of reincarnation
2: oh yeah Yeah, yeah okay. He of- knows he knows about it. We're not sure if he believes in it or okay.
3: not. We'll see.
1: <laughs> <I> we'll see. <laughs> let's, just, let's just say that some part of us
2: uh is comes back in some yeah, way. Yeah,
1: to come not only comes back but is carrying a, a a suitcase full of the karma from the last lifetime. Yeah. And and that particular aspect of us is um what comes in when we're actually in con- in conception and it carries the blueprint actually of what our bodies will form as as well yeah. as past relationships that might even pattern some of the relationships we have in the life we're moving into
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and the peri spirit obviously can change and shift during a lifetime, but it also leaves a death and is prepared to go on into some other zone. Yeah. So the spirit is a very important part of what they focus on in spiritism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just say, well, what is it in English? Is it the soul? Is it blah, 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 blah.
2: So we get all confused about how to translate it. Right. But but it is, is it
3: like a atman, param atman?
2: No, it sounds like the causal body to me in Eastern philosophy, like the the storehouse of karmas, basically. That like, I mean, in reincarnation, that's kind of what reincarnates—not your personality, not your disposition or your likes or your dislikes. It's just like the storehouse of karma. Is that is that the same thing? Yeah, and and yet I haven't
1: seen it in Eastern philosophy, maybe because I haven't read enough. Harmony, but I haven't seen it in Eastern philosophy explain quite as much as they do within spiritism, yeah, and mm-hmm. literally giving the blueprint for for what you will look like, uh what yeah. disease you might have, uh exactly everything about how your body will function yeah so wow. um so actually addressing the Peri spirit in energy healing is extremely important and part of what uh. they're doing.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and uh, maybe part of why the 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 healing is so important. Mm. Yeah. Now I oh. can't remember why I'm talking about this. Spirit so and self-realization.
2: Spirit, <laughs> you were asking about spirit, right? Yeah. yeah so if there's you were spirit, offering is that different... the peri spirit? You're is that like a... the are they unified? So. Oh dear. There's
1: so much, uh, I I don't want to turn this into a semantic kind of conversation, and I struggle all the time with the vocabulary, because I know the vocabulary from the Eastern philosophy, I know the vocabulary from Brazil, and I speak quite a bit of Portuguese, and and I know how we struggle also to bring it all into our conversation.
0: And Mm -hmm. part of
1: the reason that we get uncomfortable with some of the terms is that there's been you know different kinds of translations, and how are we supposed yeah. to figure that out?
3: Well, it's I mean true. that's exactly my my issue with the word spiritual is that it just seems so uh, amorphous and broad, and it it, it it the connotation is is a kind of a you know white girl with a candle and and <laughs> incense, and I but I think like like the if you're you know, if you define it in, in Latin, then it's someone who's interested in the breath, and I can narrow it down to something quite specific. It's like, yeah, then then I like the term.
1: Yeah. So I it's it's really important for us to have something that points to what is not of the physical and what mm-hmm. is not of the emotional and what is not of the social. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or the thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and the thinking. So what is, what is that? And um, and it is likely very connected to breath in terms of practice, <laughs> inspiration yeah. and spirit. Mm-hmm. But, um, but on the other hand, it's been really dis- distorted. I mean, yeah. I, I absolutely love spiritual music. But mm-hmm. are we supposed to think about what spirit is from spiritual music? <laughs> gets us into a whole other zone about what this what spirituality and and spiritual means, mm-hmm.
4: yeah.
1: And it's not that it's bad, uh, but it's it's different than where they would go, like in Thailand, probably harmony, you would say, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so so I I tie just to to bring it into the the concept of peri spirit, yeah, I bring it the word spirit into that zone where there Mm -hmm. is something that continues on life to life and that uh, is somehow keeping a record, not to say Mm -hmm. that we're being judged by the guy on the throne in the sky, but Mm -hmm. to say that there is some kind of record keeping. And Mm -hmm. as the spiritists believe, there is a goalpost actually that we're headed towards and that's something extremely central for all of the spiritists is that we, it, it's possible to become more like Christ or more like those enlightened beings that are, have shown up in various cultures. Sure. And, and uh, so how are we going to reach that? And so the spirit, spiritist centers are set up to support spiritual evolution.
4: Mm
1: -hmm. and what is spiritual in that case? Well, what is the most highly developed person, the most highly evolved person? What do they act like? What do they think about? What do they do? Uh, What's the impact that they have on other people? What's the impact they have on their world? And so I think in the English language, we call that spiritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
3: the, when I think of spiritual music, I think of the Almond Brothers. But <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. well, this is this leads me to another interesting topic that I I was wanting to speak to you about, which is, and we touched upon it at the very beginning, right? Like this idea of the guru and needing a spiritual teacher to to you know sort of model yourself after or to help you navigate the path um but it seems to me there's just so very few actual spiritual gurus and actual realized masters and there's a lot of fake ones like like 99 well, of
3: them well let's call them disorganized
2: <laughs> disorganized <laughs> um and so how i mean First of all, maybe how how should somebody, a spiritual seeker, um, proceed in this land where even people who, you know, are the sons or grandsons of uh, potentially enlightened (laughs) masters. Not
3: to name any names.
2: No, but I mean, there's huge, huge injustices going on. Yes. With with these spiritual teachers or you know yoga teachers or whoever that um you know they have a group of people and i'm sure you've seen this in all of your years in all of the spiritual communities the group of people who are under you know whatever teacher whether it's you know Ramana Maharshi or whoever right What happens when that teacher dies and then they have like their son, their family members, (laughs) heaven forbid, or, um, you know, other highly evolved people. If you look at like um, the Shivananda, right, turns into the Bihar school, turns into Swami Satchitananda, it turns into all the different people. It happens in Buddhism. It happens everywhere. When the abbot goes or, you know, Suzuki dies, what happens? They're, They're left either with like top students or family members who then step into this role and lead the community. And then the community fissures usually, right, and breaks apart. Um, But there is a group that are following whoever is in the lead, (laughs) whatever lead horse takes over. And that person is more than likely not as highly evolved as the original teacher. Right. And so then as things kind of go through the ages, they, they tend to disintegrate or devolve in a way. So as a spiritual seeker now, like, you know, coming into this, this landscape, how can, how can I know the difference between what's real and what's not real or who's true and who's not true so that I can be safe and not end up one of your patients. (laughs) <laughs> oh dear!
3: You have to use your discriminative faculties. Oh, <laughs>
1: well, but um, I mean, it's difficult. I, I think there are a, a lot of people who are asking the same questions, and and you said it really well, Harmony. You're very <laughs> articulate about it, and and I think it's a, a it's a real source of of suffering for a lot of people, yeah. which is if if they do have a sincere desire to. Open to the higher higher realms, then, and they know it's a either described as a slippery, slidey slope or a razor's edge where you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's easy to fall on one side or the other, and if you fall off a razor's edge, God only knows the pit you're going to fall into. Right? It's not mm-hmm. like so. Um, so yeah, where do you go? And and to. I'm just going to kind of regroup and try to recollect what Russell asked me, which is how long have you been in SRF? So, (laughs) so at a certain point, and that happened to be in 2012 when I became very um, aware of the shadow side of a certain spiritual teacher. Yeah. I was sitting, uh, standing on the back porch and just said, that's it. I've had it. I just want to be with someone who's completely self-realized. I I've learned a lot from the teachers I've had access to. I'm grateful, grateful, grateful for all of it. But at this point in my life, I just want I want the top dog. And not mm-hmm. to say that top dog means that we're in competition and so there's been a lot of, you know, competing going on but to say someone who has really achieved that high estate and is yeah. also dedicated to being a teacher because mm-hmm. there's some people who've achieved that state who don't really care about being a teacher at all. You know, just yeah. leave me alone. Thank you. I think I'll just choose my cave and, and uh, whatever. So yeah. um, I know the way that I found my way to what I'm doing now. So that was like 10 years ago, 11 years ago was uh, through prayer. I just said, I, I I prayed for what I wanted and it showed up. Um, Mm. and that was within a couple of weeks, literally. And and I had to go through something, which was, oh, okay, here I am. I just left Brazil. I'm back in the United States. Who am I going to meditate with? A friend of mine said, oh, come meditate with us. She didn't say anything about what the group was. She just said, come meditate with us. I did. I found out it was an SRF group. I thought, oh, I've, I've, I've had it with spiritual communities. I'm feeling <laughs> upset about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and so no pressure at all. But at a certain point, I said, I, I kind of like what's going on here. What's, what's the next step? I found out that yeah. there was something called the lessons. And I thought, lessons? Oh, God, I don't need them. <laughs> so, you know, a huge amount of arrogance showed up at this point. And I just mm-hmm. thought, I've read it all. I've done it all. I don't want it. And I did mm-hmm. it anyway. I started reading, and I and yeah. I thought, wow, this is very grounding to have it all kind of brought together for me yeah. in a way that didn't um, say anything negative about what I've been through at all, but brought things together in a way, and more importantly, led into a kind of meditation that I thought was really superb. So anyway, mm. it, it was a progression for me. And- yeah. Each person, I think, has to do their own shopping, as it were. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's one of some maybe one of the most important things we shop for is who mm-hmm. are we going to entrust with our own spiritual evolution, mm-hmm. and and some people, you know, are are happy with just looking at YouTube videos and saying I'll do this right. guided meditation today, another one tomorrow, another Hatha yoga class the next uh, this afternoon, and yeah, and that's fine. But for yeah. the people, for the people who are really sincere and really want to move toward towards a goalpost that's recognizable and towards something they can really pay attention to,
4: mm-hmm.
1: I think it's really to do the shopping is really important, and to yeah. really find someone that you trust. And there are people, but I would agree with you, Harmony. Maybe one percent.
2: Yeah, and there are a <laughs> lot so of small
1: who would like to put on that t-shirt and say yeah. that they're part, they're part of that 1%. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I know. I, I listened to this, this, it's so interesting that we're talking about this um, teacher in Brazil because I, I listened to this, this podcast yesterday um, that Gabby Bernstein had done about her um, experience with this, I'm sure the same teacher in Brazil and, um, and her just really kind of putting out this warning of like you know if someone's showing up with this this t-shirt on <laughs> like I'm the big guru um she's she said in her words run in the other direction <laughs> because uh, you know it like you said there's a lot of people who want to w- put on this label and show up on this pedestal and there's only one direction down from that pedestal if you're putting yourself up on it, and it's not the direction you want to go. <laughs> well,
1: it, uh, it sounds to me like a, a job description that would be extremely difficult, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. To be the guru figure. That's an yeah. easy thing. And my understanding of what a guru is, is someone who is 100% dedicated to dissipating darkness.
4: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: The- and what does that look like, right? Mm-hmm. What does that mm-hmm. look like to be 100% dedicated to dissipating darkness? We don't see a lot of it. No, I you know. got to do the work here like first, it. right, inside yourself. So you got to be that, that light. You got to, which means you also have to like recognize your own darkness, like you were saying, right? You have to come into, into see the shadow side inside yourself. Cause if the shadow side's outside of yourself, it's also inside. Mm-hmm. And so, like, to do that work, so that you can show up in, in, in the light and, and, you know, be 100% committed to dispelling darkness internally, as well as externally. Yeah.
1: It's, it's it's a tall order, isn't it? Yeah. Well,
3: I like those guys in the, um, the forest tradition. I think those are good guys. Forest tradition. Yeah. The forest sangha, the, the, the Hinayana Buddhism, those guys. I like them. They're kind of out of the Thai tradition. I think they're oh, good.
2: Oh, yeah. The forest mugs. Speaking,
3: uh, speaking of shop around,
2: <laughs> shop around. you
3: uh, you have a number of books available to our audience that I think would be extraordinary resources. You have Resources for Extraordinary Healing that you wrote in 2011, The Call of Spiritual Emergency, Spiritism and Mental Health, 2011 uh you have the film spiritism bridging bridging spirituality and how is there anything else that you're working on that you'd like us to to highlight in particular oh. that that people would be um would
1: well that's interesting so i am the executive director and founder of integrative mental health university yeah. and and so um we now offer 40 different courses online, basically to give information so people can make informed choices about mental health care. But we do integrative mental health for me is body, mind, and soul and social. um, But specifically underlying what are the tremendous resources in spirituality, including Hatha yoga. Sorry, use the word spirituality, Russell.
4: No,
2: it's over. Right. <laughs> He's used to it. He hears it all the time. <laughs> okay, so,
1: so we're really we're really highlighting that, and I, in particular, recognize that people can enter into a spiritual emergency, right? A crisis mm-hmm. like we've described, like you have huge highs and huge lows, maybe five minutes following each other.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: then the question goes where do you go to get help right and uh do you belong in a conventional hospital likely no (laughs) and uh do you belong maybe with peers other people who've had lived experience who also have some training to assist you to feel more comfortable with what's going on and assist you through it so they integrate it yes Mm -hmm. so so we've trained over a hundred spiritual emergence coaches mm-hmm. through the university, and uh, wow. and so that's an important thing. But we also give courses so that let's say, if your loved one, let's say, I'm gonna make a joke. Okay, but let's (laughs) let's say Russell Russell goes into a spiritual emergency and Harmony is going. Constant spiritual emergency. You know, he's completely flipped out about it. And Harmony is left holding the garbage it's not doing it for me anymore what am i gonna do and (laughs) and russell's so upset by her using the word spiritual that he's not even (laughs) sleeping for days on end so she's really holding the bag you know nothing's (laughs) happening the dogs aren't getting fed so um you're describing our life (laughs) yeah Mm. so so anyway uh there, there are people in that situation with a loved one Either a son, a daughter, a partner, a friend, whatever. And the friend is going through a spiritual emergency. And the and uh, so the friend who's not in the spiritual emergency says, now what? How can I help this person? So we're yeah. also assisting people on that level. And spiritual emergency is not a word, a, a kitchen table word. First of all, it has the word spiritual in it, right? Which some people yeah. don't yeah. like. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, stop. I'll stop russell so um, but but it is it is something that i work with all the time which is well what does work universally we we aren't even there yet we don't even have a word for it yet and yet people are going through this so mm-hmm. someone else has suggested how about emergent phenomenon That's That's mouthful, Mm. blah.
4: Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. and we could just say awakening. Someone's going through a difficult awakening process. That works. Yeah. So, um, but still, the question is, where can they get the support they need? And so, we're doing a lot of education in that particular realm, as well as educating people about, well, you know, uh, the phenomenon that can happen, like maybe someone feels that they've have communications with spirits or interdimensional beings. Does that mean that they're crazy? Or does or and what does science say about that? And what is what what can help me? Um what is what is a shamanic journey like? And would that help me? Because I'm not feeling really good. You know, so yeah so anyway, it's it's educational and that's one of the bigger things that I do. Could you it you does. Also seem,
3: it does sound like something I I, I would actually <laughs> I would make use of, and I could I could. Is there a, a an application process where you could become a, a spiritually emergent coach? Uh,
1: yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well actually, you uh, you take one course, which is called "How to su- Effectively Support Someone in Spiritual Emergency." And mm-hmm. then, if you like it, you can go on to what's called a practicum, which is like a two-day uh, live on-location training. The first course mm-hmm. is online; the second course mm-hmm. is on location, and that's mm-hmm. more experiential. That's really skill building: how to hold yeah. space for a group, how to, mm-hmm. um, and some of the parameters around doing one or one one-to-one work.
3: Right. Ethics.
1: That's it. I mean. <laughs> so um, I'm. You know, the Stan, Stan and Christina Graf who, who really initiated the Spiritual Emergence uh, Network back in 1980, one of the, the yeah. primary things they said is there'll be more and more people who are going through the awakening process who need support. And actually, if we could have support groups all over the world so people yeah. can be with others who are going through the experience, they won't feel isolated. They don't need to ask themselves the question, am I going crazy or not? They can hear other people's stories, realize they're not alone, realize they're likely not crazy, but may need some psychological support if they're integrating, you know, dark periods in their life or shadow aspects of themselves. But that doesn't mean they're crazy. It just means Mm -hmm. they're going through an evolutionary process. So Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm kind of picking up uh, at that point with the graph work. You know, mm-hmm. we said that was important back in 1980, but no one has really been consistently training people to do those support groups and um, <clears throat> making sure the organization is there. Back to bureaucracy, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> the organization is there. And so people yeah. can find those folks. So yeah. we, uh, on the imhu.org, our main site, You can find our directory for spiritual emergence coaches, as well as access to the courses. And uh, and Russell, we would welcome you. And (laughs) I watch you shiver every time we use the word spiritual.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I'm very actually, I'm very actually intrigued. And I, and I want to, I want to thank you for for coming on the show but i'm also like i'm super intrigued about how harmony found you in the first place well, i wanted it's to am- say this it's amazing because it's i'm really this, Im- is- <laughs> this has really been in- incredible i know
2: it's so fascinating talking with right? you like i said we could talk for hours and hours i think because it's this is a topic that i i love that i find so rich and deep and juicy and interesting and has so many different directions we could go in but I think you also do some some therapy or coaching with people who have have struggled right with this awakening process but maybe also have you have a um, private practice yeah experienced within within the uh context maybe of an awakening or even coming out of like a cult-like situation or a, a, a situation where people have experienced abuse or trauma
3: right maybe spiritually
2: harmony. mentally emotionally physically you are somebody who can help them maybe
3: harm you could help harmony
2: <laughs> i think you <she> could <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, I have a private practice. <laughs> yeah. And and actually, Russell, the way I came to your door or came to Harmony's attention is is through someone who had approached me because she had had a very difficult time and mm-hmm. was looking for someone who had know-how around spiritual communities as well as psychology. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. how she
2: found me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So... Um, who knows there could be <laughs> many people out there listening mm-hmm. who have suffered these these things, so like you would definitely be my my recommendation to like go to all <laughs> of
3: them all of you listening
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it can, it can be confusing, like you know like we've said we said earlier, sorting out some of these things, you know what what's appropriate behavior in certain situations, what isn't you know, sometimes people come out of these situations and they don't even know, like, like, was I abused? I don't know.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure.
2: Right. You know,
3: was I disempowered?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Was I disempowered? I mean, I, I mean, just like to go on a brief side show before we (laughs) close, I was at this uh, ashram this uh, Ayurvedic ashram in India. And we had talked about this in a previous podcast, just, just briefly, but you know, you have the Ayurvedic doctor and he's like opening chakras and he's chanting mantras and his fingers are in your vagina. And you're like, I'm not sure. Am I being sexually assaulted here or not?
3: It was a big jump there from mantras <laughs> to.
2: <laughs> right? But it, but it is confusing for people because it's under the cloak of. This is a spiritual practice. This is an ancient thing. This is Ayurvedic. And yes, you're naked on the table, but I'm chanting mantras and using, you know, Ayurvedic techniques.
3: I just want you to activate your pelvic floor.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And we're activating Mm. your muladhara chakra here. And so it's confusing, right? You leave those situations thinking, huh, (laughs) I think that something might not have been right there.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It can be confusing, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, and it comes in a lot of different packages.
2: One hundred percent, yeah, it's all over, right? It it shows up in different ways, and like it, it can be physical, it can be mental, it can be emotional, it can be all kinds of different things. Being lines being crossed, maybe right, or boundaries being right. <laughs> pushed yeah. beyond and, the point of, and we don't the have the
1: vocabulary for it. You know, no. even yeah. to talk to ourselves about it. Yeah. And then yeah. it gets kind of scary. Like, who do you talk to? Like, I wouldn't have gone to my dad to, if I had that experience. I wouldn't have gone to my dad and said, Well, so what was going on? You know, he'd say, yeah. Well, at Harvard Medical School. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, we don't so, do that. No, they, uh, the, just the no language for it, you know, no shared language. But yeah. shared language is—I mean, it, we're not just talking about words; we're talking about concepts
2: too. Exactly. So exactly. And as a student, you're putting yourself in those situations as well often, and so then it gets even more confusing. You're like, "Oh, and I'm paying for this."
1: Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Right now, yeah. I'm
2: really confused.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then it follows like, "Who do I go to to help me sort this
2: out?"
4: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I mean, you're doing such a such an incredible job in the world, and I think that that it's it is like you say it's going to be needed more and more because this you know I think more people are are moving into the mind body practices, you know, breath work practices, all these different things that are really working with this psycho spiritual energy. It's working with our nervous system, and you're going to get there's some... not a lot of expertise to help people when it goes out yeah. of. Out of uh, control or in a direction that wasn't intended. You're going to get some people who try too hard. <laughs> uh,
1: well, you know, um as we're talking about it, there's also with the psychedelic movement and so yeah. much interest in this that yeah. people are saying, I don't need to go to Peru. That costs a lot of money. I think I'll just go to an IRB. Uh, not Ayurveda, but An Ayahuasca, ayahuasca. <laughs> ayahuasca yeah. retreat in San Francisco or New York yeah. or Boston yeah. or wherever. Yeah. You know, like I can just hop in my car and go in the weekend and I don't know this person, but I'm sure they're OK because it's really yeah. about the Ayahuasca. It's not about the person. Well, yeah. it's the same kind of thing, like yeah. choose as a teacher and guide. Is that person really um, going to be there for you? And unfortunately, there's, there's been a lot of abuses in that world as well. As yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah,
2: 100%. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was just such a pleasure to meet with you and have this conversation. And people can find you on your website. Can you say it again? Oh, I. I am
1: think, think of the phrase, I'm human. And it's oh, oh. beautiful. I love four it. letters i'm yeah you. i'm i'm you. You. Dot org. Not org. not-for-profit organization
2: wonderful wonderful non for profit organization thank you so and all the information will be in the show notes anyway but we're oh, okay. just so grateful you could come on our podcast today. Thank you well, so much. it was
1: a delight talking with you. I enjoyed it completely. And I'll tell you, I didn't realize that we were being recorded for the first 10 minutes. And then I looked up and I thought, oh, we're being recorded? It just
3: kind oh, of... I we just started do, it. I was like,
2: we're going to lose all the good stuff if I don't start so this. We're losing so much <laughs> good
3: stuff. She just like pushed the buttons like, oh, they're we off and running.
1: In. Oh, i I didn't tell all my dirty jokes for a <laughs>
3: <laughs> would have fit in perfectly. <laughs> Next
0: time. <laughs> Next, time.
2: <laughs> Next time.
0: Next time. We'll save those. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony with me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon.